Good evening, everybody. Can you hear me all right? Fantastic. I hope you're all doing well. Anything new and exciting out there? Yes. Mm. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. How you doing, Lamar? All right. While we uh, wait the last couple of minutes, uh, I'll ask the question I always ask. Uh, anybody got any questions or anything on their mind that they'd like to kind of talk about tonight? Remember, you are muted as you come in. Uh, if you do need to talk, uh, feel free to unmute yourself. If you're having trouble with that, wave frantically on camera and I will help you out. Um, All right. Well, uh, we might as well go ahead and uh, get going then. Uh, we are still studying uh, Luther's large catechism. We are in the first commandment, um, and we're going to be picking up here um, at, at paragraph 39. And again, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And our small catechism tells us this simply means that we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Uh, in the last couple times, uh, we, we've been sort of talking about what it is to have a God. A God is simply just anything you expect good from. Um, and so here inside of this, then we actually have a revelation of God's character, um, that, that he would insist on, um, on us having no other gods. That is him simply insisting that he get to be God to you. Uh, Luther, when we, when we start to dive into the 10 commandments, he does something wonderful here. It, it shows the, the depth of his wisdom, um, in that we, we understand that there are two great doctrines in the Bible. There is the law and the gospel. The law demands. Um, the, the law can never actually give. It can only sell. It can barter. It can trade. Do this, get that. Um, and so there's very little comfort to be found in the law as much as we try and find it there um, because the law always ends up showing us we're some kind of sinner or another. And then there's the gospel, which cannot demand. It can only give. It can only promise. The gospel is the good news that apart from anything you could ever do, Jesus died for you. Your sins are forgiven you. These are the law and the gospel. And normally we, we try and sort of keep them in, in separate and very distinct corners. Um, but as Luther dives in um, in the large catechism into the Ten Commandments, he doesn't necessarily keep them so far apart. And I'll give you an example uh, for uh, as we start to go into this. Uh, so, so we believe that um, the Lord's Supper is truly Jesus' body and blood for you to eat and drink for the forgiveness of sins because he says, take, eat, this is my body for the forgiveness of sins. We simply grab hold of God's word and, and say, I don't understand it, Lord, but you're smarter than me on account of being God. So uh, can I have some of that, please? Um, if I walk up to somebody and I say, take, eat, the body of Christ for you, is this law or gospel? And already we can, it, it's, it's gospel, but take, eat. That's a command. Um, see, when we, when we sort of try and say it can either only be one or the other, um, we, we can kind of end up a little bit mixed up. Um, and so, for example, I, I could tell you, um, if you have eaten and drank of Christ's body and blood, you have the Lord with you, your sins are forgiven, and you will most certainly dwell with him in paradise. And if you just took communion, that's a wonderful gift. And if you hadn't taken communion in 10 years, that seems like a curse. Is this law or gospel? Well, yes. There are two great doctrines in the Bible, but at the same time, um, where you're at sometimes has a lot to do with what you're seeing inside of it. Um, and so this is where we're going to start to go with uh, paragraph 39. Um, even inside of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Um, Luther sees not just law inside of this. Uh, we'll pick up at paragraph 39. I hope you can see it on the screen. But terrible as are these threatenings, so much more powerful is the consolation and the promise that those who cling to God alone should be sure that he will show them mercy. That is, show them pure goodness and blessing, not only for themselves, but also to their children and their children's children, even to the thousandth generation and beyond. This ought certainly to move and impel us to risk our hearts and all confidence with God, if we wish all temporal and eternal good, since the Supreme Majesty makes such sublime office and presents such cordial endorsements and rich promises. Um, in other words, God is telling you he wants to be your God and he wants to be the source of all goodness so that you can actually expect good from God. 
In other words, even as God says, you shall have no other gods before me, and this comes with a great threat, what a great promise it is to actually recognize there's a God in heaven who absolutely insists on being God to you. He says, look, I've got all the power of the world all of your idols don't have. I can control things, the, the things that you wish you were in control of, and I want to work good for you. Look here, not there. God is actually giving us a great promise as he pours out um, the, even the, the Decalogue. Um, because inside of this, we have a revelation of who he is. See, every commandment that God gives, we've talked about this, it is a reflection of, of who he is. And so you know what kind of rules I have in my car. Uh, there, there are certain kinds of music that are against the 11th commandment. Um, and um, they, they just should not be played. It's a reflection of who I am, that I don't like country music. Thou shalt not play country music in my car. It's very simple. Um, if you want to um, see what kind of person uh, somebody truly is, just look at what kind of rules they're making. It's a, ref it's a reflection of who they are. When God says, don't have any other gods, what he's saying about himself is that he actually wants to be God to you. So when we look at um, the Ten Commandments, don't just look at them in terms of yourself, um, but also look at them in terms of who your God is. And here you actually start to see a great promise with each commandment. Um, we'll, we'll eventually get into the second commandment to, uh, tonight too, I believe, but even just to kind of give a taste of it, that God says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Uh, you can certainly find all the places that applies to you, but understand, God actually gave you a name so powerful that it matters how you use it. God actually gave you a name with such power that, um, that, that it comes with a, a warning label, um, that, that it comes with, a, with a, uh, a direction upon it. Do it the right way, not the wrong way. Good things can come when you use it this way. Are you kind of following me? Questions? All right. Let's keep going. Therefore, let everyone seriously take this to heart, lest it be regarded as though a man had spoken it. For to you it is a question, either of eternal blessing, happiness, and salvation, or of eternal wrath, misery, and woe. So in other words, when we talk about the first commandment, what we're ultimately talking about is faith. The, the difference between heaven and hell isn't your works. By works of the law, no man can be justified. So says the book of Romans. Um, for we are um, justified by faith and not by works. Uh, Ephesians 2 verse 8 also says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any should boast. Um, so when we, when we talk then about um, the idea that, that um, this commandment alone is the, the distinction between um, eternal salvation and eternal wrath, what God is simply commanding you to do in the law, he is fulfilling for you in the gospel. It, it, the law will always demand more than you can give, but the gospel will always give everything that the law demands. Your catechism tells you, you cannot by your own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, your Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called you by the gospel, enlightened you with this gift, sanctified and kept you in the true faith. So I, I can say then, you shall have no other gods before me. And that's a problem for me personally, because I got nothing but idols. I've got all sorts of stuff that I fear, love, and trust in, and most of them more so than God. I'm a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me. But the gospel provides everything that the law demands. In other words, Jesus fulfills the law for you. And it turns it into a gift. Instead of simply saying, because you trusted money, you can't go to heaven. Our Lord is saying, I want to be a gift to you bigger than money could ever be. And he gives you the faith to trust in him for it. So that we would start to turn to him in the middle of our needs. Um, when we talk about this, uh, this, this distinction between heaven and hell, we're simply talking about faith. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Again, that, that's Romans. Um, when, when our, our Lord would, uh, demand the first commandment be followed and he does, he also sends forth the Holy spirit through the preached word, through the sacraments to, to instill in us that faith that is the fulfillment of the law for Christ has fulfilled the law in our stead. Are you kind of with me here? Mm -hmm. Outside of Jesus, the law is only going to be a curse inside of Jesus. The law is only going to be a blessing. It cannot bite you in Christ. It cannot harm you in Christ. It can only help. Even as it shows you your sins, it, it helps because it points you back to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of it. Are, are you kind of with me? Yes. Fantastic. Any questions?
I wasn't just asking so I could drink coffee, I promise. I was a little. Paragraph, um, paragraph 41, we continue. Uh, what more would you have or desire than that he so kindly promises to be yours with every blessing and protect and help you in all need? Um, so, so again, even, um, even the stuff that, that we, we think we need, our Lord is promising in faith. Paragraph 42. Uh, but alas, here is the failure. That the world believes nothing of this, nor regards it as God's word, because it sees that those who trust in God and not mammon suffer care and want, and that the devil opposes and resists them, and that they have neither money, favor, nor honor, and besides can scarcely support life. While on the other hand, those who serve mammon have power, favor, honor, possessions, and every comfort in the eyes of the world. For this reason, these words must be grasped as being directed against such appearances, and we must consider that they do not lie or deceive, but must come true. This is one of the most timely documents written 500 years ago that I've ever stumbled across. Um, it, you go out in the world and they say, what point is there to Christianity? Look, you guys are no better off than the rest of us. Um, the world would say, like, look, if, if God really is for you, if he really is pouring out all of these blessings that, that you say, um, why do you hurt? Why do you get sick? Where you get cancer. If believing in God is simply the cure to not have problems, why do you have so many problems? And on the other hand, why do all the people who want nothing to do with your God seem to be doing just fine without him? See, the thing that the world would always do is measure the idol. So in other words, you, you see it even as they start talking about mammon. Um, the, the measurement of mammon is simply how much mammon you have. But why are you going to measure God by an idol that doesn't that doesn't live up to him in, in stature. Why are you going to say the God who wants to save you from death itself can be measured in terms of money? If you want to measure the fulfillment of God's promises to you, don't start with yourself. Start with where these promises were fulfilled to you. Start with the resurrection of Jesus. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. We started that way. It's fantastic. Um, because even this way, as we start to do it, we can say money's going to come and money's going to go, but my Lord is still risen. A and for that matter, um, that, that means that money is no longer the measuring stick of God's faithfulness and his promises to you. Health is no longer the measuring stick and whether or not there's such a thing as Jesus, the empty tomb is. If Christ is risen from the dead, then even when suffering should come along, understand that that's where God does his best work. That's why our symbol is a cross. E even when uh, we, we struggle for want and for fear, um, we have a God who has promised to work even without these things. If your God can only work if you have enough money, your God isn't Jesus. If your God can only work if you have enough money, your God is money. If your God can only work when you have enough health, your God isn't Jesus. If your God can only work when you have enough health, your God is health. You see, when uh, Luther starts to point us in, um, the world would try and measure God by the standards of idols, which isn't fair because, well, that'd be like measuring idols by the standard of God. They fall apart real quick. If you want to measure idols by the standard of God, let's do it. Can money survive the tomb? Can you take any of that with you? Well, so the question is, which standard is going to hold? Is there more than just this world? That Christ is risen from the dead points to the fact that there is. He is placed into the tomb, and three days later, he rose. Which means that when I start to, to deal with which standard should I be going by, I don't want to measure by this world, because this world is about death and resurrection. And so if you're only looking at things this side of the resurrection, of course it looks bleak. When Christ cried out and gave up his spirit, it looked bleak. But that was the greatest victory we've ever been given. And in the same time, um, when Christ was risen, the people of this world didn't understand it. Like even Mary, who was at the tomb, didn't recognize Jesus. She was like, hey, you're the gardener. Uh, where's, where's the guy who was here? Um, but Christ was still risen and the salvation was secure. And that means that when we Christians still struggle, because we struggle with this uh, every bit as much as the world. If we really are Christian, if God really does love us, why are we hurting this way? Why are things going this way? And we're pointed back outside of the idols of this world. We're pointed back to well, the God who we're supposed to fear, love, and trust in above all things in the first place. Are you kind of with me here? Do you have questions? 
Mike had to look up that big word, mammon. <laughs> it's a fun word. Um, I just told on him. He gave me a dirty look. I'm going just to use say, it later because, you know, that, that, that's great. You know, somebody who uh, uses wealth and covetous of evil. So, yes. Yeah. Um, mammon, it, it's... it's um, it's the embodiment of, of idolatry. It's the embodiment of using the powers of this world. And so we usually measure it in terms of wealth, but, but mammon takes other forms too. Um, if, if like we were to even go back into like a pre-money standard, um, it would be measured in how many cows you have, mammon. It would be measured in how much power you can control in this world. Um, it just turns out that uh, since we use money um, anymore, uh, that, that seems to be one of the easier indicators of control. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's where it always comes down to. Is it of this world for control or is it of the next, of the God who gives it? That's always been the distinction. And that's why you cannot serve both God and mammon, God and money, uh, but can still have both. You just can't serve both. Um, and this was something too that um, many people throughout uh, time and space have, have uh, inside of Christianity struggled with. Um, even inside of Jesus' own words, it's easier for a uh, wealthy man, uh, or excuse me, easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. Um, and that doesn't mean that like Jesus only loves poor people. That means that the more power you've given, the more temptation you have to trust in it. A and so instead of that, um, sometimes, uh, well, this is what the law does to us. It takes away our control. The law shows us this isn't going as well for us as you think. Um, I'm not saying rich people can't be saved, and neither is Jesus. He's simply saying you cannot serve both God and mammon. You can have both, but you can't serve both. To give away all of your money is still to need things of this world. There, there was a monastic order founded upon this. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi um, was actually a, a son of a very wealthy nobleman. Um, and he read these passages, and, and he was convinced, I'm wealthy, how can I be saved? And so he gave away everything that he had, everything like the clothes off his back, his money, everything. And he was begging in the streets. And his dad came along and got really upset with him and like gave him some more stuff and said like, please don't do that. He just gave it away again. Um, and eventually he actually founded a, a whole monastic order off of him. The Franciscan monks are, are still a thing today. I mean, they're one of the larger orders in the church and one of their vows is still poverty. Um, the, the problem is that if you're all going to give away everything that you have, the economy starts to break down and you can't actually serve your neighbor. See, there's actually something to be gained inside of gainful employment, not just for you, but for those around you. So, um, you're, saying, so you're saying that uh, with wealth and financial fortitude, rather than holding it in and enjoying the fruits individually, selfishly, rather to share that and expose others to bring them up and inspire them be more godlike through, through your financial resources. Um, and not even just don't enjoy it. Because like, understand, um, so if I want to, uh, um, a piece of art that, that, bring, that is of leisure, um, well, to buy it means to pay an artist. It means to provide for a neighbor. Um, money is simply the expression of desire. Like it's an economic term. Um, so if I have $100, say I have 100 want points, what do I want more, a video game or food? Well, I might think that I want a video game more, but after about two days, I want the food more, and so I'm going to spend my money on the food. Um, if your want is all selfish, then the way that you deal with money will all be selfish. If inside of faith you understand that you are already taken care of and your neighbor is in need, you'll spend money not worried so much about it. And, and there, the, good, the, the, the exchange of goods and services actually provides for a whole community. Like, it's not just give away everything that you have, but even in the buying and selling. Like, I go to HEB, but people are, are a benefit from that fact, right? Sure. So, so it seems like the more wealth you make, the more that you can do for many others, as long as you can continue to, to, to uh, generate that. So rather than condemn the wealthy for actually helping others and are philanthropic with their resources, then things continue on in the direction you want to go. Because Jesus said, we'll always have the poor. Yes. But what you say is, they would always be the same poor. Right. But he, he means you'll always have a neighbor in need. So love your neighbor. Exactly. Um, the problems of this world aren't yours to solve. That's actually one of the most freeing things of, uh, that, that you're ever going to come across. 
You can love your neighbor without having to worry about solving it. That, that means I can care for the homeless guy in the street and give him a lunch without it being my burden to solve world hunger. I got this guy right here. I'm going to worry about this and God's going to worry about that. Um, it, it's, it's a freeing thing this way. Um, when mammon becomes your God, that means you have to use money to control something. And so it becomes your job then to end world hunger by your wealth. Um, it's a noble goal. It, it truly is. But most idolatry is of the very noblest kind. Like understand that most idolatry um, is, is big picture thinking. Just sort of played out horribly in the small picture. I'm like, even go like back to, um, back to, to um, oh, uh, who do they sacrifice to? Um, there's a God in the Old Testament. They, there was child sacrifice to. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name right now. Um, but even as they, they gave up their own children, they did so under the idea that this would appease the God and that the whole community would thrive. They were sacrificing the few for the many. The what Aztec. an atrocious thing. What's that? The Aztecs. They did that too, yeah. Um, a bunch of those people down there. <laughs> yeah, oddly enough, child sacrifice is a, a major theme in, in uh, perverse and idolatry, um, um, idolatrous religions. Um, it, it's... Uh, Milton, who wrote that um, every false religion is simply a corruption of the true one. So then look to the true religion where the father sacrifices the son for you and see how the devil would twist it and pervert it and say, that is not finished work. That is your job to do. That is not something God did for you. That's something you must do for God. The whole thing gets put on its head and everything is backwards. Um, idolatry is simply trying to be God and control things. And look at what has to be done for you to control them. It's, it's always a perverse thing. So was it Abraham that God asked to take his son to the mountain to sacrifice? It was. So that's kind of the analogy of what you just uh, gave an example of. Yeah, and it's a passage that a lot of folks struggle with. Um, it's in Genesis. So Abraham is finally given his firstborn son, Isaac, after years of being promised. Um, and he's old at this point in time. He's over a hundred years old and he finally had a child that he never thought he would have. And this is his pride and joy. And God says, go up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And we sort of take it as a test. Like we always do for some reason decide, um, God was just waiting to see what Abraham would really do. Except if he's God, he should already know. Otherwise he's kind of a discount God. Um, and we, we sort of say, well, because he chose right, then God spared him. But, but otherwise it never would have happened. Um, I think that there was more going on. And you see it even as the, the, the text starts to shape it up. So even as they go up onto the mountain, um, Abraham tells the people who he tells to wait down below, we will see you again. We, plural. In other words, I don't know what's going to happen between here and there, but God made me a promise. So whatever's coming, he's got this under control. I don't know if he necessarily expected the ram, but I, I kind of think he expected the resurrection. So I think that kind of illustrates the point showing the heathens that sacrificing the young people God took Abraham to that point and then stopped to make a point to the heathens to say no this is not how we do things but this is what faith means to go right. do what I am right and, and all the way along he, he provided um, for the, the ram uh, was, was wearing a crown of thorns even as it was sacrificed do you it's notice that? Uh, yes, yeah. yeah, it's a foreshadowing there. Absolutely. Boy. Mm -hmm. The whole thing. It's all about Jesus all the way through. The second you take your eye off that Jesus ball, um, it, it turns into works and the law becomes a burden. Um, I, I'm not saying that Abraham and Isaac weren't both pretty nervous about the whole thing because, well, <laughs> why do you have to, like, honestly, why do you have to, to instill in everybody perfect courage to, to coincide with faith? Um, faith is a shaky thing. And, and I think it's a wonderful thing to start to acknowledge that, that, that I can, um, I, I can stare down the last great enemy death and say, Christ is risen. I know I will rise, but I still, uh, Lord, you better hold my hand on this one because I need you here. Um, in the same way, um, I, I'm, I would bet everything I own that, that Abraham's hand shook. Um, but at the same time, his confession, even on the way up the mountain is, we will be back. This is my son that God promised. This is the kid from whom all offspring will come. This kid has to live. I don't know how he's going to do it. And I'm really not happy about this situation. But somewhere between here and there, it's going to iron itself out because God's under 
God, God has been, a, well, it's the first commandment. God has promised to be a good God to you. Um, this is how we deal with our lives too. I'm really not too keen about certain situations, you guys. Um, and I'm pretty sure I don't know how it's going to work out. And I'm sure I would do it different. But God has promised to be a good God to me, to you. And so even as he calls us to place our faith in him, he points us to the source of every blessing. It is, well, him instilled in his son. What do y'all think? Good. Anybody else? Questions, comments? Good stuff. All right, let's keep it going in paragraph uh, 43, 44. Yeah, no, 43. You know, let the rest of the class catch up. All right, reflect for yourself or make inquiry and tell me. Those who have employed all their care and diligence to accumulate great possessions and wealth, what have they finally attained? You will find out that they have wasted their toil, labor, or even though they have amassed great treasures, they have been dispersed and scattered so that they themselves have never found happiness in their wealth. And afterwards, it never reached the third generation. All right, and so, I mean, he points out something that we still kind of see today, um, that, that um, if you just give somebody uh, everything on their way up all the way through and you never actually teach them their work, by the time they get to spend it, they won't, they won't care for their neighbor in it. They'll, they'll waste it and, and dispose of it. Um, but there's a bigger picture of it. Um, at hand. And again, this is a, a question of law and gospel. If your God is a God of the law, then there's never any actual happiness, even when you think you've got the whole thing worked out. Um, if, if your God is wealth and you have all the wealth in the world, does that actually bring peace? Or is there just more problems with it? We quoted the philosopher last time. Um, and in the same way, um, if your God is a God of the gospel, well, then even when you have nothing, you have everything because he's the one in charge of getting all this stuff done. He's the one who's promised to work all this stuff out for you. And, and do it by works. You can do it by, by acts of contrition. You can do it by, um, by prayers said. You can do it by anything. If your God is only a God of the law, even when you're doing the thing, there's no real peace to it because it could always fall apart because there's never actually happiness in it. It's a burden. But if yours is a God of the gospel, well, then you don't have to do enough. And, and so even when things are falling apart, you can have peace. Are you kind of with me? Yeah. Awesome. Anybody questions? Just interrupt me if you need to. I talk a lot, I know. <laughs> all right. We're on paragraph 44. Instances of this you will find a plenty in all histories, also in the memory of the aged and experienced people. Only observe and ponder them. Here we're going to have a great contrast in paragraphs 45 and 46. I want to look at these two names. Saul at the top of paragraph 45 and David. Top of paragraph 46. We're gonna, I'm just going to read them both and kind of compare the characters of Saul and David and, and see, again, a God of the law and a God of the gospel. Uh, Saul was a great king, chosen of God, and a godly man. But when he, established, when he was established on his throne and let his heart decline from God and put his trust in the crown and power, he had to perish with all that he had so that none even of his children remained. David, on the other hand, was a poor, despised man, hunted down and chased, so that he nowhere felt secure of his life. Yet he had to remain in spite of Saul and become king. For these words had to abide and come true, since God cannot lie or deceive. Only let not the devil in the world deceive you with their show, which indeed remain, remains for a time, but finally is nothing. So Saul, given all the power in the world, wanted to trust in that power. And it drove him mad. And David, who had nothing in the world, put only his trust in the Lord and God had that under control. He had to remain because God was a good gift giver. Um, and so that means then um, this, this last line um, remains for a time, but finally is nothing. It's sort of a call to sort of check our perspective outside of our immediate wants, needs, or pain because inside of immediate want, need, or pain, everything contracts. It's sort of like when you stub your toe and the whole world becomes you and the coffee table. Um, when you're hurting, all you have is the thing that hurts and the thing you want to make stop hurting. God says there's more going on here. The world has been spinning for quite some time before you got here, and it's going to keep turning until Christ comes back. So instead of trying to measure everything by what you can do this moment, look to the God who has cared for things all the way thus far. Look to the God who has already conquered death. Look to the Lord who is Lord of creation itself. You kind of with me? 
Awesome. All right, let's finish up the first commandment, dive into the second. Paragraph uh, 47. Let us then learn well the first commandment that we may see how God will tolerate no presumption nor any trust in any other object and how he requires nothing higher of us than confidence from the heart for everything good so that we may proceed right and straightforward and use all the blessings which God gives no farther than as a shoemaker uses his needle all in thread for work and lays them aside or as a traveler uses an inn and food and his bed only for temporal necessity, each one in his station according to God's own order without allowing any of these things to be our Lord or idol. Um, so this, this idea um, of going home at the end of the day at work um, is sort of the understanding that there's more going on. Um, the idea that, that when you stay at a hotel, um, you don't have to worry about things. Like somebody else is going to clean up, clean up after me. I'm not going to make the bed. And uh, somebody else's is, job is to make sure this, this, uh, the lights stay on here. Um, I'm going to come in, sleep, and go again because there's somebody else who's already supposed to take care of this. Well, that's God, but that's your house. Hmm. That's, that's your retirement account. Yeah. Somebody else is taking care of this. You get to come in, use it, rejoice in that and keep going. Cause there's more, there's more even of this world. Um, the, the shoemaker who, who um, uses his, his needle and all and thread for work and then lays them aside is, um, the Christian who goes into their vocation and recognizes I don't have to solve every problem in the world. I'm going to deal with what's in front of me today and then I'm going to go home and God's going to handle the rest. Um, it's something that uh, Luther writes, especially to, to, to pastors because there's always another book to read and there's always another visit to make and there's always another sermon to write. This is a job I've come to find out you will never actually be caught up at. Like even when you're caught up, no, because unless the Lord comes back, you got to do the whole thing again next week. And there's at least 18 people who have a problem you don't know about yet just waiting to happen. So you, you, you do what's been put in front of you. And then you go to sleep recognizing that it's not your job to keep the world spinning. It's God's. Inside of being a parent, there, there's nothing but something else to be afraid of. Um, and just, I'm so happy for the internet for giving me all sorts of new things to be afraid of now too. That's been a very useful, <laughs> useful thing. Um, but instead of just sort of finding more and more to be afraid of, what if it's not my job to make sure that these kids are brought forward in the world? What if there's a God who actually wants to see it done too and has promised to work good here? This is the distinction between seeing goods as um, um, worthy of idolatry and seeing goods as good gifts from God. Is he in control of them and using them for good? Is there more to it than just this stuff? This is, this is how we see faith. Um, God has promised us more. And so... I'll do my job and, and then I'll lay it down and I'll go home and, and I'll enjoy the gifts that I've been given. And then I'm not going to worry so much because the good God of heaven and earth is this under control. Are you kind of with me? All right. Last one. Let us uh, let this suffice with respect to the first commandment, which, which we've had to explain at length since it is of chief importance because as before said, where the heart is rightly disposed toward God and this commandment is observed, all others follow. In other words, this one was longer than the rest because if you have this one out, all the rest will be pretty easy. And if you have this one wrong, none of the rest are going to make any kind of sense at all. So um, if, if the heart is set toward God, we can actually see the law as a gift and not a curse. That lets us deal with the second commandment. You guys ready? Let's do it. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Here we go. As the first commandment has instructed the heart and taught the basis of faith, so this commandment leads us forth and directs the mouth and the tongue to God. For the first objects that spring from the heart and manifest themselves are words. Now, as I have taught above how to answer the question, what it is to have a God, so you must learn to comprehend simply the meaning of this and all the other commandments and apply it to yourself. So with the heart one believes and is saved, and with the mouth one confesses. What do you say about this God you believe in? That's the second commandment. And that's, that's an important distinction um, because we, we tend to take a very, very narrow scope with the second commandment and say it just, it involves the words you might say when you stub your toe. Um, the second commandment is more than just the words you would say when you stub your toe. Um, in fact, it's chiefly um, directed towards, again, something good. What do you say about what you believe? What do you say about this God who you have? Not what shouldn't you say when you get hurt, but but... What should you say when there's actually something to talk about? 
So again, paragraph 51, if then it be asked, how do you understand the second commandment or what is meant by taking in vain or misusing God's name? Answer briefly thus. It is misusing God's name when we call upon uh, the Lord God, no matter in what way, for purposes of falsehood or wrong of any kind. Therefore, this commandment enjoins this much, that God's name must not be appealed to falsely or taken upon the lips while the heart knows well enough or should know differently as among those who take oaths in court where one side lies against each other. Um, so in other words, are you applying God's name, which you know to be powerful, to get something for yourself? That's right back to idolatry. Um, so so as, as he kind of talks about this, um, where to go? Uh, when you appeal to God's name falsely, um, I, I swear to God so that you will hear the name God and, and um, give me something, or so that I will seem more credible. I'm basically just cashing checks out of God's account. But instead of letting him be the good gift giver, I'm trying to choose what I get for myself. Instead of letting him determine what, what should be and shouldn't be, I try to rub some, some of the name of the Lord on it so that I can control the outcome a little bit more. This is flowing right out of the first commandment because how you use God's name in this world, well, what are you looking to get? If you're just looking for idolatry, um, well, you already learned not to do that. You kind of with me? Yes. So should we not take an oath in court? Should, is, it, it, is it more appropriate to say, I'm sorry, I refuse to take that oath on the Bible? He's going to talk for um, a few paragraphs about just that. It, it's, it's, uh, he says it better than me too. So uh, let, let's kind of dive into this. Um, but, but the long and short of it is no, um, not necessarily. Uh, when you use God's name, God's name is a good gift. So use it for the good of your neighbor, not for the good of yourself. There, there may be times when you are to, to take an oath in the name of the Lord. Um, but, but how and for what purpose uh, start to dictate this? Uh, let, let's dive in and start to see. Um, even just as we begin this in paragraph 52, um, for God's name cannot be misused worse than for the support of falsehood and deceit. So if you're going to take an oath in order to, to well, lie, that's a, don't do that thing. That's bad. Um, let this remain the exact German simplest meaning of this commandment. Don't use God's name for falsehood or deceit. Um, and so here we'll start to, to break it down. Um, in paragraph 53, uh, for from this, everyone can infer in when and how many ways God's name is misused, although it is impossible to enumerate all its misuses. Yet to tell in a few words, all misused, the divine name occurs first in worldly business and in matters which concern money, possessions, honor, whether it be publicly in court or in the market or wherever else men make false oaths in God's name or pledge their souls in any matter. And in this especially prevalent in marriage affairs where two go in secretly betroth themselves to one another and afterwards abjure. Um, in other words, again, are, are you using God's name to further um, goodness and virtue and beauty? Or are you using God's name for something else? So what so, you're saying, if I give an oath, an honest, objective purpose to the Lord, then it is true and it's okay. But should I give that same oath and then decide to promiscuate the truth, that's where it's wrong. Right. And I don't even say more than just okay. It's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. See, God gives you his name because he actually intends you to use it. He doesn't say, here's my name, set it on the highest shelf and never touch it. Um, our, our small catechism says we should pray, pray, and give thanks when we start to understand this. That, that means that God's name is given as a good gift. Um, when it's used in goodness for the good of neighbor, thanks be to God. When you pray for your neighbor, it's the same as when you, honestly, when you testify in court for your neighbor. Um, here, you're using God's name as he intended it to be used. Um, so, so we'll eventually start to make a distinction then, um, between setting, um, like, I swear I will do this thing of which I don't have as much control over it as I think I do. Like, I swear I will do the dishes tomorrow. Um, well, <laughs> I, I mean, let, like even setting aside the weakness of my flesh that doesn't want to do the dishes tomorrow. What if I just don't have time? Like, what if there's an emergency? What if the phone rings and I end up on the phone because of some emergency for an hour and a half and I just didn't get to it. I, I rubbed God's name through the mud there, not my own. Um, I'll simply say, I'll go ahead. But initially, you had all the intent and purposes of fulfilling that wick. That, uh, oh, yeah. But don't, so, don't let my intentions be the thing that save or, or condemn. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a saying about that. 
Um, yeah, so, that's that saying. Uh -huh. So I have another question. What about all the people at the end of a phone call that say, God bless, and then they walk away? I'll say I'm, that. <laughs> God bless you. I, I truly do. God bless you this day. Um, yeah. we, we end church that way every time. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Um, God's name go with you. Because God's name, when it's with you, brings blessings. Um, when you start to use it for falsehood and deceit, that's where Luther says we really start to go away with it. Um, not that we say it too much, but that we apply it to things that aren't helpful. Or, uh, so yeah. when, when somebody says, uh, God is my witness, the next thing that comes out of their mouth better be the truth, right? Right. And so here's the question then. Why are you called to witness? Um, so if you're brought into court and you're to witness, you're actually to see justice done for those who cannot get it themselves. You're actually supposed to use this then for the good of your neighbor. Right. Which is what God's name is for. Um, if you're going to use this to, to spread something pervert, um, some, something that is false, something that is deceitful, um, nothing good will come from it. And it's, a, it's an awful, awful sin. Uh, we're jumping ahead a little bit, and Luther's going to kind of cover this. But what he's going to come to say is, um, ultimately, um, if you have a, a thing to say, let it be true. And if you don't have a thing to say, why are you going to put my name on it? And you can do that with me, too. Like, not just the Lord. Don't apply my name to things that are deceitful. I got a problem with that. It's going to make it way harder for me to do my job. Um, it, it, what's that? Shouldn't that be the way we always act? Meaning, if we're going to put our name to something, it should be for honesty and good ethics, not for deceit and selfishness. 100%. And how much more with the name of the Lord? Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Understand that this, this commandment is not about um, avoiding the use of God's name. It's, it's about avoiding the misuse of God's name. And those are different things. He actually does want you to use it. So, like, when people will say, um, I, mean, I hear people say this all the time, other Christian women that I'm around, like, God told me this, or he, you know, spoke to me and told me that. And I always wonder is, if that's, I, I don't, they're not trying to be deceitful with God's name, mm -hmm. but I do feel like that's kind of using his name. I don't think they mean it to be in vain, but it, it seems like the same thing to me. You were talking about the very next paragraph. Oh. <laughs> it's fantastic. No, um, Luther, like, this is how good he is at this stuff. Um, so, so God spoke to me and told me that um, we, we need a bigger church. Um, if you're a, there's a televangelist in Atlanta near my parents. Uh, they, they were really mad at me because um, I'm a preacher, and they don't really understand the whole thing yet. Um, but the preacher in Atlanta said God spoke to him and told him that he needed a private airplane. Oh, yeah to really demonstrate that God was real and powerful. And the people gave him one. Um, they, they actually came together and gave him his own airplane. Um, God spoke to him. So here's the, the real greatest issue with, with the second uh, commandment, paragraph 54. But the greatest abuse occurs in spiritual matters, which pertain to the conscience, when false preachers rise up and offer their lying vanities as God's word. In, in other words, um, the greatest thing that you can do against the second commandment is to speak where God didn't, is to lie about who he is. And so if God spoke to you and said that it's creamed corn for dinner tonight, and that's not in the Bible, no, you just wanted creamed corn. Why you got to put his name on that? Nothing good comes from that. Um, because people make mistakes. Like there's all the time, like there are hospital wings dedicated to it seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, and the problem is, if, if you just want to put God's name on that, well, God spoke to me and, and told me that I could totally uh, slide down the banister. It, it was great um, it, until I fell off of it because, as it turns out, that was a bad idea. Um, when you apply God's name to things that, that he has not spoken towards, um, even in the smallest of things, you start to introduce him as fallible and, and, and as dishonest, even unintentionally. Because this is the problem. Um, it, it's not just that those who, who go out... Um, wantingly uh, are, um, to, are those who, who go out intentionally trying to deceive. Sometimes it's those who go out with the very best of intentions trying to explain away who God is because they don't want to see him come out the wrong way, but end up sort of painting him as a God he's not. So that's always been an issue for me to discern when God is spoken to someone 
as opposed to someone using their, as you said, mm -hmm. their vanity palace, or not palace, but uh, motives. And when somebody says, God has told me, or I pray to God, and I feel this is where he's taking me. How can we make the distinction between, was it God or was it your vanity thought of what you yes. really want to be? That, that's the most challenging process of my thought. People say, I've said, and then they finish the sentence. Yeah, the simplest way is show me the chapter and verse. Because if you can show me the chapter and verse where God spoke to you and said, I'm down with it. Like show me in Hebrews chapter uh, one, verses one and two, where it says in many and various ways, God spoke to the people of old by the prophets. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So me, show me where his son spoke it. Now you can say God has given me a, a, a reasonable uh, um, brain. He, he has given me good advice from the people around me and we're making the best decision with what's in front of us. But that's a different thing entirely than say God spoke to me and said. So um, I, Number one, I think I didn't know you were from Missouri. But other than that, um, where I see this happening the most over the last 10 years is God told me I needed to run for this office, mm -hmm. especially no, medical office. God told me I needed to run. What I find shocking is that he told five other people that they needed to run too. And I don't understand why God told all five of them that they were going to run. <laughs> right. Um, so Jeremiah says, if a prophet has something to speak, let him speak, but everybody else be quiet. Um, no, God did not tell you to run for office. Now, what he might have done is, is given you a, a, a special set of gifts that would be able to help a group of people inside of that office. And he might have given you the circumstances to run in. And he might have even given you the people um, in your life who might help you get elected. Um, but at the end of the day, then say, God has given me the opportunity to maybe make a difference here. And let's see what's going to happen. That's a very different thing than God told me to run. You can even say, I, I see problems here that, that God's word can address, and I would like to point people towards it. I, I, I see here a, a set of problems that I'm uniquely equipped to, 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 uh, to, to address, and every good thing come, in me comes from God. But it's a whole different thing to say, God spoke to me and said. Um, here, I, I simply say, show me the verse. If, if you can, I'm down. But like, understand how, much, uh, how many atrocities come from people who are spoken to um, by things that are not the prophets. Um, the systematic way to talk about it is this. Um, so uh, there are two kinds of, of people sent to speak God's word. There are those who are, call, who are called immediately and immediately. And that doesn't mean like right away, but immediate is with means and immediate is without means. So those who are called immediately, like God speaks to Moses and says, Moses, go tell the people this. And Moses is like, I don't know if that's a good idea. Um, <laughs> that, that's the story of Exodus. Um, and then those who are called immediately, they're called through means. That's like me, uh, Pastor Reedy, um, Pastor Miser. We are called through means. I, I know I'm supposed to be the pastor at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church because through the means of our church, the, the Holy Spirit spoke and said, it's this guy. And I said, all right, Lord, I don't think this is a good idea, but okay. And same thing. Um, but inside of it, there's this one thing that always happens with the immediate calls, with the ones where the Lord just speaks from on high and tells people to go do things. It's always accompanied by signs. It's always accompanied by miracles. Always. Um, so, so two things have to be true then for you to be a prophet of the Lord, who, who, who is like sent just, God spoke to me and a voice from heaven spoke and now go do it. First, everything that you say has to be in accord with the word of God already. Because if it disagrees, well, the demons can do grave signs too. Um, and second, do a miracle. Um, so if God spoke to you and, and said, do this, I would say, cool, do a sign. Mm -hmm. Like if God spoke to you and said, run for office, like do something flashy, right, for me. Otherwise, fall back in line with God's word like the rest of us. <laughs> um, and in the same way. Um, if I were to have just sort of wandered down from Nebraska into San Antonio and been like, guys, I'm not really down with snow. God spoke to me and said, be your, I'm, I'm your new pastor. Um, you should say, do a sign. Cool. If, <laughs> if that's the case, like do something, do something Jesus-y. Um, you know, like honestly, heal the sick, raise the dead, do something. Um, if I can't do that, I have to fall back into the means of the church that God normally uses. And so instead of that, um, the Lord spoke uh, through you. 
and said, Pastor Goodman, we think you're the guy. And I prayed over that. And I said, not simply like, which way am I led to go? Um, because the problem with concerning uh, calls is you always sort of get the mammon and the Lord mixed up. Like you either deal with a call according to, um, to idolatry or, or masochism. Um, in other words, you either deal with it according to the last page of the call documents that actually talks about the money, or you talk about it in terms of what am I willing to suffer for? What am I willing to, to, to strive for? And so every call I've ever gotten, because it's, it's that frustrating thing where you have to go and try and determine God's will and there's not a chapter and verse. Because when you guys called me, I had two calls. I had a call to Nebraska and I had a call to San Antonio. And so I can either be selfish and say, which one's easier on me, in which case I would have stayed in Nebraska. Um, or or I, I can say, what am I willing to suffer for? And so I've been a pastor for 10 years and I've had eight calls, um, which is too many. Um, but in all of them, I have asked two questions. Are they Lutheran and do they want to be? If they're Lutheran, um, they, they might actually put up with me. If they're not Lutheran, they're going to hate me. So why is this anyway? And do they want to be? In other words, is there something to strive for? Is there something to suffer for here? And I think there is. So I said, Lord, I think this is a bad idea, but okay. Uh, and God works inside of that. Like Moses was pretty sure it was all going to fall apart, but they made it through. It was bumpy, 40 years in the desert, but they made it. And in the same way, the wheels haven't fallen off the bus here yet um, because God is in control of this church. He set it up against the gates of Hades and Hades is hot, but the church will, will prevail. Um, but in all of it, we, we, instead of saying God spoke to me and said, like God led me, we, we just say, this is, this is where the Lord spoke. And by the gifts given to me, this is what I think it is. So be it. Does that kind of make sense? I think where people get confused is that we consider uh, pastoral care as a calling. And they use these other ideas as their calling. And um, usually I don't see that by people that are Lutherans. Usually we see yeah. that by people who are something else. But, um, and there's lots of other something else's. But over the years, I've just seen a lot of it and um i don't know so they take what is that calling and distort it is that a good way to say it or no i mean it's actually a wonderful way of saying it because what they do um understand so we as lutherans we talk about it in terms less of, of calling we use the word vocation but vocation it has a latin root that means calling um like you you have a calling to, to be a mother um you have a calling now uh, inside of a new new job of a surprise but okay <laughs> yeah but i mean like that's how they all come always um so so inside of this then um where it gets tricky is um where all all of the the um the uncertainty is um the people who speak that way tend to speak with absolute certainty and where all of the certainty should be they speak with doubt uh, and what i mean is god spoke to me and said i need an airplane um so where there's no certainty at all i've applied the most certainty in the world and as far as getting that well, instead of just sort of leaving things up to God's care to work good through this, I've made it my job to see it done this way. God spoke to me and said, I have to run for office. No, he didn't. But now I have to win or else there's no God. Do you see the, the great perversion that happens when we flip the whole thing on, on its head and we break the second commandment? Um, where there should be absolute certainty that God knows what he's doing and he's going to get you to where you need to go relax. We make it our job to work. And where there's not certainty, we apply God's name and try and make it certain so that we can say we're justified in doing it. Instead of that saying, look, I, I think I might need to run for office. Um, God's going to take care of us no matter what and, and not worry so much. We try and put all the burden on ourselves and, and the whole thing turns into a curse. Because as God says, he's the one who appoints the leaders to our lives. Regardless yes. of party. And I think once we recognize and realize that, there's a reason why our leaders become the leaders. And we just have to trust God's word and his path. Probably the most difficult thing we can do is, is humans. And so yeah. for disclosure, and I know a lot of people in this group don't know me, but I, I, did, I was spoken to and God did tell me I needed an airplane and I bought one. So now you need to tell me <laughs> how I can use this so that I don't, you know, I'm not one of those. So here's the thing. Um, 
There's no chapter and verse that said you need an airplane, but if you have one, <laughs> God. Like, understand, like, it, it's no longer yours to figure out what to do with. Um, God will work in your life as he needs to. Um, that, that might mean, you know, um, there were people, I don't know about this specific case, because as it turns out, I'm not God, but I know that when Katrina came, um, there were a whole bunch of people who had airplanes that started flying supplies in. God didn't speak to them and tell them, do this, but God somehow put in their lives airplanes and supplies and people who needed them, and the rest sort of took care of itself. <laughs> Well, you did get kind of personal there, so I just thought I'd throw that on out there. I was going after uh, somebody, somebody who was actually, they, they, made, they didn't buy our, this guy, he didn't buy it himself. He made other people buy it for him. That's a different thing. <laughs> like, I'm just saying. Like, it, it, there's a difference from saying, um, God uh, gave me the funds and I'm going to use that to go out to dinner. And God spoke to me and said, you need to pay, to, to pay for it. Well, I, I told the heirs to my estate that I needed one that God told me. <laughs> they were a little happy. <laughs> show, me, show me the chapter in a verse and then, and then we can talk. What are you asking him? It will be true. <laughs> uh -huh. There it is. All right. Good stuff. You guys with me? Other questions or comments? Mm -hmm. I have a question. Another question. Yeah. Um, it's something that it's kind of out there but it's something that's come up in our house lately about um christian movies or novels that are um like not an allegory or not like a biblical story that's retold like in a different time period but just something that's totally made up um christian fiction like isn't like I used to read a lot of Christian fiction and then one day I found myself like thinking, wasn't it great that God moved in this person's life and did this thing? And then I realized God never did that. And so, I mean, okay. is that the same thing? It's like telling a lie about God. It is this paragraph right up here. Um, where'd it go? What was that maybe called? The With the um research that Haley's had to do for her yeah. paper like that's come up with between so, us again um so what what you have i'm going to kind of so i'm going to put out two christian fictions let's do the lion the witch and the wardrobe so there's no such thing as a lion who through his sacrificial death and resurrection saves the land of narnia but at the same time it, it points to a, a larger truth that is told that is jesus through his death and resurrection saved you um, there are also the ones that are sort of um, kind of hallmarky movies where people have really rough lives and then they just they give themselves to Jesus and all their problems go away. Um, and, and they're wonderful kind of uplifting feeling stories. And you start to say, I see God's plan in this, which is the thing we really want to say is I see God's plan. Because honestly, what we really want in our lives is that whole thing. God, tell me what your plan is. Um, but the problem that comes when we start to say, if I put God's name on this enough, all your problems will go away. That's the mammon thing that we just talked about in paragraph 43. Um, in other words, if, if the whole thing sort of climaxes in, you no longer having problems, your real God was control, your real God was mammon, whether or not you want to stamp the name of Jesus on it. And so for some of these, these um, personal testimonies, we get a little bit cautious. Um, and, and they're not just in the movies. You see them kind of in, in sort of the, the um, testimony circuit that, that exists in certain branches of Christianity too. The whole, I was lost, but now I'm found movement. And so um, sort of the more drug addicted you were, um, the better the story becomes, because now that you're not doing drugs anymore, clearly there's such a thing as Jesus. Um, and, and I'm not saying you should do drugs. Drugs are bad, but at the same time, um, God's existence isn't actually contingent on you being sober. Um, what if you relapse? Is Christ still risen? And is there still hope for you? Um, if the prodigal son were to run away again, would the father love him any less and receive him in warmth any less? Uh, the, the problem was sort of rooting um, the, the reality of God simply in having your problems dissipate when you really give yourself to him um, is the problem with Lazarus who was raised from the dead. Um, it's great that he was raised from the dead, but the story has to stop before he dies again. And it's great that all of those movies um, end with somebody's life coming together, but the movie has to stop before they have the next problem. Um, in this life, there's going to be no lack of 
misery. Um, and that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. But that's because we ourselves are sinners and we don't stop being sinners just because we love Jesus. And the devil doesn't just go away, even though he's conquered at the cross. Rather, we have a God who daily and richly forgives your sins. That means you are both sinner and saint at the same time. And even though the devil will assault us and, and bring about all sorts of misery, none of those things that he can do on us can actually take from us the kingdom. That's how Luther closes a mighty fortress. And take they our, our wife, goods, fame, child, and life, though these all be gone, the kingdom has been, or the, the victory has been won, the kingdom ours remaineth. Um, that, that if you want to measure God's reality in the stuff of this world that can go away, that's a misuse of the second commandment. And the first commandment, because God has promised you more than just stuff in this world. He's promised you the resurrection. And when you want to say God's name is only empowered when people have stuff, you sort of have issues with uh, like the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man had stuff all the way through his life. And Lazarus had nothing but dogs licking his sores and wanted nothing but the scraps from the table. But faith endured in Lazarus, not the rich man. Um. That the problem with, with these movies um, isn't just that they're not always based in reality um, because your problems just don't always go away when you get Jesus. Honestly, you usually get more because all of a sudden you got a target painted on your back from the devil. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, the, the problems uh, are, are, are kind of magnified when everybody who desperately wants to be free of their problems says, all right, if I believe in God, all my problems will go away. And he's never actually promised that. And this is actually the next uh, the, the next paragraph that we're gonna we're gonna pick up in paragraph fifty five. Uh, just this line, and we'll pick up here next week. Behold, all this is decking oneself out with God's name, making a pretty show, or claiming to be right, whether it occur in gross worldly business or in sublime subtle matters of faith and doctrine. That's that line right there. Even in the subtle matters of faith and doctrine, if your idea of Jesus is just your problems go away. Um, you sort of have to contend with all of the martyrs of the faith. Um, these people who sang hymns on their way to their death, um, they were saved because Jesus is merciful even in, in these places. Jesus has worked life that even death can't destroy. So um, my, my, kind of my, my concern with some of these movies it isn't um, that they're not wholesome. Um, and I see why people flock to them inside of the church because they, they don't, they're not full of profanity and, and dirty scenes that you get uncomfortable watching. Um, but at the same time, um, if they paint a picture of Jesus who isn't real, that might be the subtler danger and maybe even the more dangerous thing. Um, because, because of these movies, there are Christians who think Jesus is a liar. They, they, they gave themselves to all of the things the movie promised, and that's not how things work. Um, so, so when Luther talks about the second commandment, he doesn't just apply it to, to, you know, what you're saying in court and how you're taking advantage of people or what you say when you stub your toe. He actually, I mean, he's going to run with it. And, and as we, we carry forward more, um, it's going to be this, um, the subtle matters of faith and doctrine. When you speak God's name, are you telling the truth about him or are you telling a lie about him? We want to tell the truth about God because he's a wonderful God. He has nothing but blessings and promises. He died for your sins. He saved you from death. He conquered the devil. These are the things we should be talking about. Uh, when we start to apply God's name to things that aren't true, um, we set people up to come to think he's a liar. Not because he is, but because we misrepresented him. And God doesn't want to be misrepresented because, well, he doesn't want us to point away from the gifts that actually work. And he doesn't want us to trust in the things that aren't actually good gifts. Does that kind of make sense? Yes. Any questions? Right. Well, thank you all so much. We've been here about an hour. Um, should we pray the Lord, uh, the prayer our Lord has taught us? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. Thank you all for your time tonight. Thank you, Pastor. Thank, Thank you. you. Mm -hmm.